0: Hi, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. It's Monday, December 5th, and I'm Jessica Steinberg. I'm joined today by Times of Israel founding editor David Horowitz and environmental reporter Sue Serks. Hello, good morning to you both. Hey, Jessica. Good morning. Hi there. We have a lot to discuss this morning. We have local councils protesting the placement of far-right MK Oz over schools' external programming. We'll also look at Israeli companies holding fossil fuel stocks and what's happening with avian flu. Before we jump into all of that, we're going to take a quick break. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachek's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek team at www.saracheklawfirm.com, that's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K, LawFirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. Okay, David, let's start and discuss the local councils and this intense backlash that's happening uh, to the appointment of extremist MK Avi Maoz. Even uh, outgoing Prime Minister Lapid has joined the battle with a hotline. Where do we think this is all going to go? Because Bibi Netanyahu seems to be a little bit surprised by this intense backlash.
1: Well, you know, there's no new coalition yet. Um, We had elections over a month ago, and there was a clear victory as we've said many, many times for parties from the uh, right and religious pro-Netanyahu bloc. They have 64 seats in the Knesset, and the only reason they're not in power already is because of the complications uh, that are inevitable when you're bringing several parties together into a coalition who, although they're fairly agreed on most things, they have their personal ambitions and they have their particular agendas. Uh, But what is striking about the process is the degree of authority and prominence that Netanyahu is, week by week, awarding to the partner parties. He hasn't uh, sorted out which of his Likud colleagues will have which ministerial positions, but he has awarded the partner parties very, very prominent positions. And perhaps the most extraordinary of all of these is that a a one-person faction that uh, that I would wager would have got nowhere near making it into the Knesset on its own. This party called Noam led by Avi Maoz, which Netanyahu helped broker a deal as part of a wider list that got Maoz into parliament. So this, this technical merged list has fallen apart again, as it was intended to, and its component forces now negotiated with Netanyahu separately. And Maoz, who Netanyahu doesn't need for a coalition, because he has 64 of the 120 seats, so if he had 63, he would still have a healthy majority. And Maoz isn't going to be siding with the the left and the center and anybody else against Netanyahu. Nonetheless, Netanyahu has made him a deputy minister in the prime minister's office with responsibility for quote-unquote Jewish identity uh, at the head of a new authority with a significant budget. Now that's tr- pretty dramatic already, and pretty incomprehensible by any logical political wisdom, right? Why would you give more authority and more prominence to a very controversial figure, vig- you know, virulently um, anti-LGBTQ, anti-Arab, um, opposed to women serving in the army? I could go on. Why would you put him in charge of something as resonant as Jewish identity, even if it's not clear what that authority would mean? So, And then it turned out, that as part of the authority of of this new incoming deputy minister, he has responsibility, we are told, or will have responsibility over what is called external programming in Israel's schools, uh, outside courses and sort of beneficial additional elements that schools can choose from a range that used to be overseen by the education ministry. Apparently, several thousand such programs with a budget in the hundreds of millions of dollars, not some minor little a, a bit of uh, an, an hour after school. No, c- programming that goes to the core of some of what our school system does. And local councils knowing this man to be declaredly homophobic and unpluralistic, and again, I could go on, uh, they 're saying this is not, not acceptable to us we 're not going to be in a position where this person gets to determine whether this or that program is available and to add new programs and to uh, narrow or widen the options. No, this is something that we will we, we will not accept, and we will not have him impacting what our children are, are being taught and that 's where things stand at the moment right No coalition radical politician the f- the, the furthest from the consensus. I mean, I think the Israeli consensus is shifting o- over the years, of course. But like I say, a party whose campaign slogan was for a, a, for, for normal families, by which the only de- definition it would accept of normal families is, you know, one mother and one father and some children, th- the, that uh, a party with such clear views that are not uh, acceptable to uh, all Israelis, to put it mildly, and certainly not acceptable to all Israelis as the only acceptable norm, that the head of this party would have so much authority, including over what is what is being offered to school children. I don't know why Netanyahu would be surprised by the backlash, and I don't understand why he gave him this position in the first place.
0: Right, so that was going to ask you, do we have any understanding of why he gave him this position in the first place? And is there any possibility that we can see that this will perhaps force Netanyahu into a position of saying oh okay this doesn't make sense i'm going to have to rethink things in terms of the coalition and what i'm building here
1: i don't know um there are you know there are signed papers but the overall deals as far as i know with any with all and any of the parties have not been signed we, you know we were trying to look into some of this for example there's an agreement that was signed with Itamar Ben-Gvir's Otzma Hudit, Party. It was signed um, something like a couple of weeks ago, but the overall coalition deal uh, has not been signed. So is that binding? I don't know. And and in answer to the question about you know what Netanyahu is up to, and, and it, it genuinely to me at least it doesn't make sense. I'm sure smarter people can explain it. Uh, he has no other coalition. That's for sure. There's nobody outside of these parties, uh, and he hasn't asked them either. Not, not the Benny Gansers and not the Yeri Lapid's. But if he were to ask them. I don't think there's a realistic prospect that uh, that anybody else is going to help him and sit with him rather than these parties. So yes, we understand they have leverage. Nonetheless, they're not going to be sitting with anybody else either. And and why you know having before the elections said no no the defence ministry the foreign ministry and the finance ministry will remain in the hands of my Likud party immediately after the election he made clear that at least some of those posts were on offer to coalition allies. So Smotrich of the of the religious Zionism said well in that case. I want to be defense minister. Uh, Netanyahu said, "Well, after you know, entertaining the notion, uh, I, I you know, he, I, I don't think he said this publicly. He said the opposite publicly, but apparently uh, realized that that would be too much of a poke in the eye of uh, uh, the U.S. administration, and perhaps uh, too troubling for others as well uh, at home. So he talked Smotrich out of the defense ministry, but now he's given him a post in the defense ministry, where Smotrich, according to the agreements as they are emerging, apparently." Ah uh, will have control over settlement expansion. will have control over Palestinian building, legal and illegal. In other words, a very, very hardcore ideologue, uncompromising ideologue with very outspoken views about the imperative to expand settlements, very hostile to uh, Palestinians, certainly as regards their rights in the greater land of Israel, shall we say. This person is being given, incre- given increasing authority, including, by the way, we, we learned today, over appointments in the civil administration, uh, an area where the army hitherto has had the the authority because the situation over the Green Line in areas that Israel does not claim to be sovereign has been governed differently by Israel in in a way that is vital to the way Uh, Israel's presence in the West Bank is seen internationally. So there's all kinds of really dramatic implications for concessions Netanyahu is making to coalition partners that would, to me at least, appear to be verging on the inexplicable.
0: Okay. Thanks for that, David. So, return to you now. Talk to us about these figures regarding Israeli pension funds, that they hold uh, at least what, you've, what we have in here in the article, about uh, 57.6 billion shekels in companies that profit from oil, gas, coal, and other polluting energy sources. The good news seems to be that the, that figure has gone down. Is that correct?
2: Well, it went up and then it's gone down again, but it's still pretty enormous. I mean, particularly when you translate it into dollars and it's like 17 billion. The thing is that in Israel, a certain sum is deducted from your salary if you work and supplemented by your employer for a pension fund. You don't know how that money is being spent and you just hope that it will yield a reasonable sum when you retire. Thanks to something called the Clean Money Forum, which is a not-for-profit organisation, we know that in the second quarter of this year, as I say, 17 billion of our pension fund money was invested in fossil fuels, and that will be a huge underestimate. The forum exists to bring transparency to the big financial organisations who are investing our pension money um, to expose how much they're investing in fossil fuels, the burning of which is the main human-caused driver of climate change and of course to pressure them to stop. Uh, and what it does is it analyses information that the companies have to publish. The banks don't have to publish the information, so there's no so we don't know what they're investing in fossil fuel uh, companies. And the financial institutions like insurance and savings and what have you only have to report on what they're investing in stocks and corporate bonds. So the information is, is by nature very limited. That's why I say it's probably a huge under underestimate, underestimate, but it still gives us some kind of idea. Now, the forum goes through all the publicly available data for the 10 biggest pension investment houses, not including the banks, and then publishes quarterly rankings, which it calculates on a point system. Uh, You can get up to 80 points, you know, the the, the cleaner your investments are and 20 points for if you make a policy decision on getting out of fossil fuels. The latest report is for for the second quarter. That's because the information always comes out late. So the rankings are always a quarter late. And this shows Al-Chula Shaham to be the cleanest of the 10, with just under 10% of its uh, share in bond investments in fossil fuels and a policy commitment to stop new fossil fuel investments. At the bottom is an investment house called Analyst, with more than 16% invested in uh, oil and coal and gas and so forth, and no policy. Yelene Lapidot showed big improvements, but the, the big disappointment was really Migdal, which is a huge uh, a huge company, corporation, and that has pledged to cut fossil fuels by 10% annually until reaching carbon net zero by the end of the decade. They were third from the top. In other words, the third cleanest at the end of last year. They were seventh in the first quarter of this year and ninth in the latest ranking. So we need to see, We've, you know, it's a yearly thing. We need to see how they do in the third and fourth quarters, uh, whether they're able to make up and catch up.
0: And then how much leverage really does your average person who has their money invested in this pension fund have to actually affect change in what their pension fund...
2: You can actually have your pension fund changed. And if you go onto the Clean Money Forum site, uh, and it exists in English as well, it will tell you exactly how to do that and also how to approach the uh, companies that are investing your money and what to ask them and what to demand from them.
0: Okay, good information. Thanks for that, Sue. We're going to take a quick break. When we're back, we will talk about what is happening in Iran right now. The world we live in isn't perfect, but it doesn't get better on its own. That's where the work of activists comes in. Whether it's environmental justice, animal rights, or disability advocacy, there are people all around the world striving to make it a better place. That's where All About Change comes in. Host Jay Ruderman talks with activists about how they do what they do and what inspires them to keep going. Because activism is all about change. Listen to All About Change wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so we're back. David, let's talk about Iran. Do we know anything else about the disbanding of its morality police, something that has been spoken of most recently, and the hijab laws. Any new information on that front?
1: Well, we, and and when I say we, journalists who are not in Iran, um, are limited in uh, our knowledge of exactly what is playing out there. And of course, Iran is very assiduous in ensuring that there's very little that's credible um, that people can get to the bottom of about what's unfolding in Iran. So, for the last day and a half, I guess you'd say we've had dramatic uh, information coming out ostensibly on both of those issues. Um, The Attorney General in Iran asserting that the uh, uh, morality police were being disbanded, have been disbanded, uh, have been disbanded, and um, that the hijab requirements have been lifted or changed or are being amended. But there's uh, confusion about it, denials also from the regime. Um, and therefore, it's hard to say anything definitive. Uh, it may be that uh, after two and a half months of protests and several hundred dead, and no sign of the efforts of the regime to suppress those protests succeeding, um, that there is some shifting by the regime. But it may be that that's not the case. Um, that the, the the sentiments being expressed by leaders who we hear directly are certainly not have certainly not been compromising, and the. Um, bitterness with the regime and the readiness of some other figures of critics to speak out um, has been ongoing. So as far as, you know, definitively, they are at odds. Uh, you had uh, Khamenei's own own niece bitterly criticizing the regime in, in video that was released a few days ago. And, uh, and we ran a piece uh, a few days ago about how significant that was, you know, when the criticism is coming from within the Supreme Leader's own family, and it's personally directed at him, um, that would suggest that the regime is in some trouble, even if it's only in terms of only quote unquote in terms of its legitimacy. Uh, how this is actually playing out, whether the regime is compromising, which would be so radically atypical, um, you know, it might be that w- that it will become clear soon. But at the moment, um, that there are you know credible reports that say that this is what they're planning to do: they're changing the hijab law, they're disbanding the morality police, and pretty credible reports and claims that that's not the case so we have to wait on this i think
0: right it all seems shocking that it would that this would actually come to fruition and then of course what would happen after that
1: yeah, I mean, if if you are if you rule through fear and intimidation, and then you are deterred, then the forces that are opposing you would consider that they have won a significant victory. And I would have thought the regime would not easily allow that victory. That doesn't mean that there isn't you know room for something other than capitulation, but um, autocratic regimes do not do not usually go for capitulation. So, I think lots of skepticism and patience is is required here.
0: All right, obviously, we'll keep on following that as well. And Sue, ending on the note of avian flu, tell us what's happening on that front, please.
2: Well, bird flu, mostly a mild bird flu, has always existed in birds, particularly migratory water birds. But then in the 1990s, we had the first outbreak of this H5N1 virus from uh, intensive poultry farms in Asia. And uh, this year, it's gone absolutely crazy. In fact, it's the worst outbreak of avian influenza ever in Europe and, in fact, across the entire Northern Hemisphere, and there's talk of 97 million birds already dying worldwide. Now, last year, we had uh, an outbreak of bird flu in Israel. There was culling of hundreds of thousands of chickens and turkeys and the deaths of, at the time, it was reported around 5,000 wild cranes, but this year they're saying it was actually closer to 7,000, mainly at the Hula Lake Park in the north of the country, which is run by the JNF. This year, we've had two reports so far of an outbreak, one at a turkey farm in central Israel, one at a farm in northern Israel in the Shan Valley, and the wildlife authorities are very, very worried. Um, one of the key issues is whether to feed the wild birds. Now, Israel is a huge migratory highway. So there are you know, millions and millions of birds that, that cross Israel twice a year. It's a land bridge uh, between Europe and Africa. Asia, Europe and Africa. Um, And for the last few years, for some years, um, the nature authorities have have allowed the feeding of pelicans and the feeding of cranes to keep them off farmers' fields. This year, and it it is thought that possibly the feeding, uh, by concentrating the birds in one place, allowed the virus to spread much faster uh, when it came last year. So they've been wondering what to do this year. They actually decided not to feed the pelicans in the north of Israel because most of the fish funds have closed and so it's less of of an issue there for the farmers. Um, But now they're looking very, very closely at the cranes. There are tens of thousands of cranes that are already in Israel and they'll be here until March. But no decision has been taken yet. Uh, The farmers still want them to be fed. And I actually spoke to Inbel Shlomit Rubin, who manages the the Hula Park. Uh, She thought that the feeding might actually have saved cranes last year. She thought that many more Cranes than those that died actually caught the disease and possibly recovered and were able to recover because they didn't have to go and look for food. The food was given to them, so uh, so it's really something to be looked at. Uh, I mean, it would be a miracle if Israel escaped the kind of bird flu that's that that's, that's spreading everywhere else. You know, I saw that in Britain. There's there's talk of rationing eggs and and there's talk of not having Christmas turkeys and what have you. So if we can keep it at bay, that would be uh, extraordinary. But it's a case of uh, it's a case of watch this space. And of course, so many of these poultry farms are still dirty and intensive, and the virus spreads very, very quickly. Although the agriculture ministry is uh, is introducing reforms whereby all new poultry houses will have to be, um, you know, will have to meet uh, much, much improved standards.
0: Got it. All right. Well, we will hope for some good news on that front. Thanks, Sue. Thank you, David. Thank you, Sue, for being on today's daily briefing. Thanks, Jessica. Pleasure. And we will be back tomorrow with another Daily Briefing. In the meantime, happy listening and have yourselves a good day.
2: Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this this out-of-this-world music. You
0: can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts.
2: And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word.
0: And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell, released every Friday. Until next time. Shalom.